Sometimes we all get in one of those moods where we want to just slow everything down. I've been in one of those. I thought, man, I'm going to sit back and just take a day where I just relax. Just do something fun. I found this old jigsaw puzzle, and I, I decided I wanted to put it together. So I sat down, sprawled it all out, and I felt really good about the fact that I was able to put it together in just nine hours, especially since the box said it was for five to six years. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville on the coldest day that we've had in the six and a half years that I've lived here. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Brian Henneman. Brian is a singer, a guitar player, and a songwriter in a band called the Bottle Rockets. And you can find out everything you need to know about Brian at BottleRocketsMusic.com. We had a great response the first time we had Brian on. And I'm really happy to get to do this again. Brian has a great memory, and he has a lot of great stories, and he's nice enough to share them. But I was on tour with the Bottle Rockets, and uh, we stopped at a hotel, I believe it was a Red Roof Inn in Madison, Wisconsin, and Brian came down to the room I was staying in. It was really super cold. We did this early in the morning. We went and got coffee, came back, and we seemed like we were nice and fired up, and I set up the mics and got so many great stories out of Brian that I decided to chop it up and make this a two-parter, so there'll be more next week. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Here's Brian Henneman. What it, what it was, it was Mark was living in Nashville at that time. That was like in between, that was before the Bottle Rocket started. So Mark was living in Nashville, and me and Jay Farrar drove down there to see him, to meet Mark and go to the, it was the, the Sir Douglas Quintet. I still have the ticket stub in my wallet. And uh, Right now? Yeah, right now. <laughs> As we speak, I've never <laughs> taken it out. I, I actually tore, you know how you tear the ticket stub? I tore it in half, and half of it is shimming the neck in my trash picker guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and the other half is in my wallet. So that's where that the ticket ended up, and it was like 1992 was when it was. So the Bottle Rockets hadn't started yet. So me and Jay Farrar went down, and we were all nervous, you know, about like, oh, my God. We, we gave Mark, we told Mark to get the tickets, and we'll pay him when we get there. And we hadn't heard from Mark, and we were like, oh, Lord, Lord, I hope he got the tickets because that thing's going to sell out. You know, it's like, oh, geez, oh, geez. And so we nervously drove down, went to Nashville. We couldn't find Mark when we got to town. It was like he was he was doing some showcase drummer thing with some singer, you know, the Nashville thing. You know, somebody was showcasing something somewhere. And we finally found him, and he, you know, he had our tickets. We were like, oh, because these are the day, we didn't have cell phones, you know, so we didn't know how to get a hold of him to find out if he even was able to get the tickets. So he got the tickets, 
And we were so thrilled, and we went to the show. It was at 328 Performance Hall, which I don't even know if that's, I don't think that's even there anymore. Big room, you know, maybe held 800,000 people, you know, big square place. The first exciting moment was the three of us come in and walk in the door, and it's like there was like a little kind of, you know, lobby area, kind of, you know, when you walk in one door and then the, the club was to the left out some other door. You don't have to go through some other doors. We walk in the front door, the two doors come swinging open, and out comes Doug Som, just like he's walking right out in a hurry in a straight line. And the first thing he says is, Man, I gotta find a place to take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we, it was like, oh my God, it's our hero, you know, and it's like, and he just sailed on past us, you know, to go take a shit. So, so that was like our first, like amazing moment. And then, then, uh, he, he t- takes his shit. We just kind of stood up there and we were, you know, asking him to do some requests, you know, whatever, you know, talking to him. We said, Hey Doug, man, can you do want to be your mama again? He's like, Oh man, I don't think we know that one. And then I'm like, you know, well, can we, you know, can you do whatever? We pick another one. He says, ah, man, we don't, ah, we don't know that one. And then I was just, I saw how this was going. So I said, man, can you do Mendocino for us? He says, yeah, man, I'll do that for you. (laughs) So, so then the next amazing moment was we get inside the room where the band is at and nobody's there. I mean, it's like, there's like 12 people in this crowd. It's like, so, you know, and the place holds like 800 people. And it's like, we're like, huh? You know, it's the Sir Douglas Quintet. What's going on? So we just sat right up front, you know, just front row, center, right there. And and there's maybe at the peak of the show, there were 20 people there. And probably half of them were guest list people from his Texas Tornadoes days, you know. So maybe all of them were guest list people, you know. I don't know. We might have been the only three that bought tickets. But anyway, they came out, and then the next amazing thing was it was the Sir Douglas Quintet, but there were six guys on stage. So that was, <laughs> that was that's the way Doug counts. Like a quintet in Doug counting is six. Is six. So, it, But it was friggin' awesome. Augie Meyer was with him. It was uh, Doug Clifford from CCR was on drums, and, you know, just fantastic. And, and we talked to him after the show. I can't remember what we said, whatever. But that was our... That was our Nashville Doug Som experience. It was pretty mind-blowing, actually, to think that we got there. First thing he did was wanted to take a shit and expressed it very loudly. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then played just a killer show. They took a break. They, like, did two sets. Took a break. When they came back from the break, it was like nobody's eyes could even open in the band. You know, they were like, they had gone and, like, done the magic thing that it that you do when you take a break between two sets like that. And, just killer. So yeah, that so there's there's the Nashville Doug Som story. Long story short, Scott Taylor was a teacher in Festus, Missouri, who taught Mark Ortman, Bob Parr, who was Chicken Trucks bass player, Tom Parr. He was everybody's teacher except mine because I went to a different school. They were all in the Catholic school. I was in the public school. But through the grapevine or whatever, Scott Taylor found out that we were making music, you know, and, and like making up our own songs and stuff. And he was this huge music fanatic, like beyond any we'd ever met before. And, you know, when he came to town, he brought this astounding record collection with him, like the likes of which we had never seen. He had stuff we'd never heard of. 
And so, you know, we would start going over to his house and he would just, you know, just play records and, and drink beer and whatever. And one of the ones he pulled out was, you know, the Sir Douglas Quintet. And the first time I heard that, I was like, whoa, you know, the first time I heard Texas me, I was like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. So it was Scott Taylor solely responsible for turning us on to the old Sir, Sir Douglas Quintet. Did they ever come to St. Louis that you nah, know of? Nah, never. I mean, maybe before I was into them, but, but never since I was into them. So the only time I saw him perform was that one time in Nashville. That is a memory that's hard to remember. It was like, I don't know why we did it. You know, it was just some funny thing. It was just Uncle Tupelo and me. Because we always hung out together. You know, I mean, I was their roadie. You know, and somehow or other, we drifted into playing country songs. You know, I don't know. And we decided to make shows out of it. I, 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 haven't, I really don't know why we did it or whatever, but we did it. And that's basically all there was to it. It was just, you know, me, Jay, Jeff, and Mike. Mike. And we just did a bunch of country songs and thought we'd have... We only played three times ever in the history of the world. Really? Yeah. Well, there so, was some... A friend of mine gave me a cassette tape of uh -huh. Coffee Creek, and it was a live thing. Yeah. What was that gig? It was at Cicero's Basement Bar, where, where Bottle Rocket started, Uncle Tupelo started... It was just like, a, it was like our countryside project. <laughs> it was their countryside project because it was, I was just their roadie. So it was like, you know, countryside project with the roadie doing, you know, we would do Merle Haggard songs. We, we, you know, it was just all cover songs and, and we'd all sing. We all took turns singing. Was that and, you playing the Don Rich licks on yeah, the Buck Owens stuff? Yeah, and, yeah. That, that was, was great. I was lead guitar. Jay, Jay played a little lead guitar, I think, on some of it. Jeff played bass and Mike played drums. And that was it. We played one time. The first, we did it one time, a single night. I don't remember the dates of these things. There's there's three recordings of it. Jeff Tweedy's mom actually recorded it all with like some kind of t tape recording system with microphones taped up in the ceiling of Cicero's. Probably a cassette recorder, you know, for the times. And the, there was the first night, which I don't remember. I get all three nights confused, except for one of them. So it wasn't a three-night stand. It was like we did it once and then decided to do it again later, you know, months later or a year later. But we thought we'd do two nights the second round because it was so successful the first night. So it was like over the course of time that we that three gigs took place. And the as far as I know, the first night of the second round where we did the two nights back-to-back, -back, which both sold out, but the first night is the one that there's no recording of because we made Jeff's mom destroy that recording. So after the, when we heard it back, because it was, it was really bad. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> it was one of these things where, you know, it was sold out. We were drinking, we were drunk, whatever. And Jeff had some pills. Okay. And it was like some sort of amphetamines that I'd never taken before in my life. And, and it was like, and, and, and I wasn't going to take them, but Jeff said, come on, truck drivers would do it. <laughs> <laughs> so me and him like took these pills and then, and of course I, I, I loved it. It was like, it was like the, I'm so glad that I had the common sense to not go down that road because when it was over and it was sort of like that recording scared me straight because I thought we were like fantastic. 
You know, I thought, you know, I'm frigging like speeding my brains out, drinking pitchers, of, drinking a pitcher of beer as like a single serving during the show. And Jeff's doing the same thing. I can't, and Mike, you know, who knows what Mike was doing. And Jay, all of us, we were just, but it was like, it was ridiculous. It's like, I'm talking like a hundred miles an hour, like between every song, you know, like, yeah, and then we'd play and the songs that'd be like really fast. And, and it was just horrible. And we were fucking things up. And like, we blew the PA up at one point and it was, <laughs> it was just horrible. And so we, we absolutely made, I mean, we had to witness the, the tape being destroyed of that show. So that show does not exist. If anybody tells you they have that show, they're lying because it, it didn't exist unless somebody recorded it themselves, which is possible, but that wasn't real easy to do back in those days. And if they did have, have recorded it, it would have sounded like ass because, you know, there weren't the little handheld things back then. It was like cassette players. Were things still cool with uh, Jay and Jeff at that time? Oh yeah, yeah, we were total boys club at that time. That was that was the era of the good old days. So yeah, that was fun. That's one of my one of my many fun facts. I sang the last Uncle Tupelo song. <laughs> <laughs> the historical last time they ever performed together, and I was the singer. We with the Bottle Rockets open for them on their last show, and we knew it was their last show. And I still probably at my house, I have something that's probably worth something to somebody on eBay. I have the itinerary of that tour leading to the last show, so it has all the hotel rooms, you know, everybody's phone numbers, the whole bit, and it actually historically follows the path from our, you know instructional viewpoint to their very last show. Somebody might want that, but I'm not going to sell it. But anyway, we opened the show and then they played and it was, you know, of, of course it was a hugely emotional time. You know, it was the friggin' end of uncle Tupelo. And then just as the last song, they decided to do, give me three steps. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I was the only one that knew all the words. To it. <laughs> So I was thrown into the position of being the lead singer of the last song they ever played together. And we all went on stage together. It was like I sang and played, you know, it was like Tom Rape was playing acoustic guitar and, and, you know, everybody like picked an instrument that, that wasn't, you know, we had enough instruments between us. So it was both bands on stage together at the same time doing Give Me Three Steps. And when that was over, that was it. They never performed together again. What was it like leading up to there? Was it a, was it tense? Or weren't they f just fulfilling a contractual yeah, obligation? Yeah, at that point, it was kind of like, there was like Jay's room and Jeff's room, you know? And it was kind of like, at, it, was, it, was, it was, you didn't really, you know, and then luckily we had opened the show, so we had our room. So it was kind of like, we didn't really get in the middle of that stuff, you know? We kind of, we kind of kept the party in our room and many of the other guys from the band would come into our room. So yeah, it was, it was, you know, a sad time. It was like, it was weird and sad and we hated to see it, but what you gonna do? It's hard when you're friends with everybody Yep, and you just want everybody to be happy. Yep. I know. Uh, is, um, was there anybody else at that gig that night that folks might've heard of or? Well, what, what was, what was nice was Mike Heidorn was there. So he, he drummed on the second to the last Uncle Tupelo song. By that time, Ken Coomer was playing drums with him. So, you know, it was nice to see Mike there. And, and there was probably a lot more people. It was Mississippi Nights, which was like a 1,200-seat club. And it was sold out. And it was big. And it was, it was a big deal. So I can't remember who all was there at that last one. Did it feel like history? 
Yeah, that one did. It really did just because you knew, you know, when you knew it was the end, it was just kind of like, man, it was really sad. I remember it was when it was all over me and Jeff and, and Sue, who's his wife now, we went to Steak and Shake together. And it was just kind of like this really kind of, you know, you're trying to be optimistic about the future, but it was kind of like, oh man, you know, it was, it was like, you didn't really know how to feel. It was weird. It was very strange. I remember that was a very kind of a, kind of a mix of optimism and depression kind of steak and shake meal me and Jeff and Sue had together. It was, it was weird. You just didn't know what was going to go on. It was, it was almost like you felt like it was all over with now, you know, cause, cause we had been getting our start as the bottle rockets opening for those guys. So it's kind of like, we weren't ready to like headline yet. And, and it was like our, you know, our, our we were parasites to their host and our host was gone. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like really, mis- it was a mysterious time for everybody, but it all worked out. So that's good. Did Jeff seem really optimistic about, uh, yes. Yeah. It, it, it was, nobody knew what to do. Really. Nobody knew what to do. Even at that time, we didn't know who Tony was going to go with to manage Jay or Jeff. You know, it was like, there was choices to be made. It was really weird and heavy and, and screwy and, and, you know, like Jeff didn't even really know if, if he was going to have Tony managing him or was Jay going to have, it was like this, this night of you were, you were partying, but it was, it was tainted, you know, it was a tainted party night. But, you know, it all worked out, and it all worked out perfectly in the end, as things oftentimes do. So that was, that was I'm glad to see it all turned out. Yeah, I, I, I think Mark made contact with him first, of course, because he's a drummer, and, you know, drummer, drummer on drummer. And, and I think Mark went somehow, well, we were offered to open for them Somehow long ago, like probably 1999. Cheap Trick? Yeah, Cheap Trick. We had learned somehow that they knew about us. And it was probably through some kind of grapevine where at that time Robert Kearns was playing bass with us. And he had been on the road with Cry of Love with Cheap Trick. But, you know, through the the pathways, we had somehow learned that they knew about us, which was really exciting for us. And then they actually asked us to do a run of shows with them in 1999, which was like very exciting because they were like one of my favorite bands in the whole world, Cheap Trick. But what was happening then was that was during the two weeks that my mother was dying. So I basically had to bail on it. I couldn't do it because I didn't want to like, I wanted to be with my mom for the last two weeks of her life. So we missed that opportunity. But along the way, like those guys, I think, they played St. Louis on that trip. They did. Then I couldn't be there. And so that those guys went to the show and like, I, I don't remember exactly. Mark would know the story better, but he met Bunny Carlos and, and, and they became sort of pals, you know, just from that night because he learned that Bunny Carlos was like a fan of our band. And, and it was just a real natural thing. Like, like, you know, nobody like forced a CD on Bunny Carlos or anything like that. It's like, they found out about us along the way anyway enough to the point to have asked us to open for him for a run of shows. And then just over the years, Mark stayed in touch with him, you know, and it's since the computer came along, it's real easy, you know, with emails and, and the whole bit. And so now if, if he's in, if, if, if Bunny's in town and we're in town, he comes to the shows and it's great. It's, it's friggin' awesome. 
You know, we, we that was like the the band thrill of a lifetime was playing Surrender with Bunny Carlos on the drums. <laughs> <laughs> it was like that. That was a career highlight, absolutely. So he showed up at the show, and you yep. asked him to come up and play yep. Surrender. And, yep. Oh. Yeah, there is nothing quite like the feeling of hearing that drum intro when, like, right there, like, like, like six feet behind me. There it is, the same one that I've listened to my whole life. So yeah, that was. That was something. So that's a cool. You know, every you, you may not make a fortune in this business, but you you'd get shit that's like worth so much more than money, which is that's that's why you do it. If you're just doing it for money, you're going to be disappointed because money is mostly a disappointing kind of a thing. But it's the shit that money can't buy. That's that's what you do it for. Well, if you could have told yourself, you know, as a kid in Festus sitting there listening to Budokan. <laughs> my first rock concert was Cheap Trick. Yeah. If I would if I would like have told myself in 1979 that that guy was going to be drumming with my band. <laughs> God, no, there's no way. It's like it's that is not possible. It's not it can't happen. But it happened. You know, it took freaking 30 something years to make it happen. But you know, hey, better late than than never. Maybe before we uh, sign off, we should tell folks uh, about the cruise that we're on. Oh yeah, yeah. The the uh, what, what's the official title of it? The we, Alt Country Cruise. The Alt Country Cruise. It's a fantastic thing. It's just you kind of drive around. Uh, you go north in the winter, in in, in in you know kind of like sketchy vehicles that may or may not make it. <laughs> It's the old country cruise. It's very glamorous and exciting. You just never know if you're going to make the show or not. It's real good. But by all means, that is the old country creed. It's kind of like, you know, book a tour. If you're, if you're playing in the winter, go north. <laughs> and if you're playing in the summer, go to Texas. <laughs> Those soft rock stars get to go to the Bermuda on That's their cruises. Right. You know, the country stars go right. to... No, no, we definitely... The farther north we can get in the winter, it's just the, the more logical it is. <laughs> it was two below zero yesterday here in oh, Madison, Jesus. Wisconsin. Yeah, it's probably worked its way up to about 15 or 16 out there by now. So, yeah. Heat wave. Well, I appreciate you coming over to, you know, the hotel room. Oh, yeah, man. Another... another Red Roof Inexperience. Oh, yeah, you gotta love the Red Roof. We gotta get a sponsorship from this place. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that oh yeah that's awesome I got through about a third of my questions <laughs> it just takes yeah, I got too many fucking stories I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Brian for meeting up with me at that hotel room in Madison, Wisconsin for sharing so many great stories. You can listen to part one that we did about six months ago, or you can tune in next week for part three. But you can find out everything you need to know about Brian at BottleRocketsMusic.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. 
But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.